I'm Matthew Huggett. Uh, I'm an employment partner at Carbon Law Partners, and I'm going to be talking to you today about fire and rehire. Hello, well, today's topic is uh, obviously prompted by the publication by the government of their draft code of practice on fire and rehire, or to give it its more accurate name, uh, give it its more accurate title, the Code of Practice on Dismissal and re-engagement. Now, of course, the whole issue of fire and rehire tactics, uh, the dismissal and re-engagement of employees uh, as a method of introducing changes to terms and conditions of employment, have been, you know, in the news quite a lot of late. I mean, we've seen a number of cases um, uh, going to the courts. Um, in particular, we've seen um, injunctions being brought by uh, trade unions where uh, injunction was obtained uh, in the High Court to restrain Tesco from terminating and re-engaging a group of their warehouse operatives. Um, and also during the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, we've also seen a couple of other quite large organisations implementing uh, widespread changes to their terms and conditions of employment uh, by using dismissal and re-engagement to do so, most notably of those companies have been British Airways and British Gas. And obviously there is a, um, a, a, a dynamic here in relation to changing terms and conditions and, uh, and particularly the arguments that were put forward by British Airways and British Gas when they were doing so was that they were doing so to protect the long-term future of the organisation and also to uh, preserve uh, employment levels. And it's often um, imperative in organisations where perhaps there is a, a, a sort of minimum level of resource that's required just to simply run uh, run the organisation. And, uh, and if then the running of the organisation is happening at a non-profitable basis uh, because of the or they would argue because of the terms, either because of the terms and conditions that employees are on or the competitive, uh, changing competitive nature of the marketplace which is operating, in which they are operating, then, then of course that can lead organisations to look at changing terms and conditions rather than just uh, reducing the number of employees they've got because in some instances like that, uh, reducing the number of employees um, doesn't actually solve the problem as such. And... And so, of course, then this then came to a, uh, a significant head then with the uh, P&O case. Um, now, obviously, the P&O case got an awful lot of press uh, and uh, P&O was uh, quite, um, uh, quite rightly, in a way, criticised uh, for the approach that they took, albeit that there is also an argument here to say, well, if the government didn't want P&O to take the approach that they did, then they would have... Uh, more robust legislation to actually deal with uh, the sort of approach that PO took in those circumstances. But although PO, um, although the case of PO uh, really did make the uh, issue of fire and rehire uh, come into the spotlight and hit the headlines once again, actually PO isn't a fire and rehire case at all um, because they didn't rehire their workers. They dismissed all of their workers and they hired new workers on different terms and conditions from different countries. So it's not quite technically the same. They weren't changing terms and conditions for existing workers. They were simply 
wanting to change terms and conditions and did so by getting new workers and dismissing all of their existing employees. But be that as it may, what it did do, it ensured that the government uh, followed through on a promise that they'd given some time ago to look at the way that the law protects people from these uh, particular instances. And essentially what the government concluded to do is although they were being put under pressure to change the legislation, what they did do is that they committed to providing a code of practice. And alongside all of that, we've got um, ACAS in uh, November 2021. It updated its advice about making changes to employment contracts and what the employer responsibilities were in doing so, which of course is then something that could be used in employment tribunals to try to show that what the employer perhaps has done has been unfair if they haven't followed that guidance or fair if they have, albeit that that is only guidance, not a code of practice, so it does have a a somewhat different standing within the employment tribunals. And, And so as a result of that, we then got the... A government announcement back in March of 2022 that a new statutory code of practice would be published to deal with fire and rehire issues and um, and to provide guidance. Now, that has now been published. The gr- draft guidance has now been published. So that's what we're going to have a, a look at. We're going to have a look at what it says and what its recommendations are. And whether, in fact, it really changes anything. Does it, does it change what employers can do or what they can't do? Now, before we do that, I thought it would be helpful, though, just to have a quick quick revision session, essentially, on changing contracts of employment. And what we need to do, because actually, as you'll see when we get to the end of this, is that, and without, you know, spoiler alert, here we come, is the fact that actually I don't think this draft code of practice really, if it is implemented in its current state, really changes a huge amount uh, in terms of the legislative environment or what employers have got to do in these instances. And I'll explain explain why. Because when we have a look at changing terms and conditions of employment, essentially what we are doing is we are we need to have a look at whether the uh, change that we want to make um, is already authorised by the contract. So that's where you get specific flexibility clauses, you know, mobility clauses, or you know, in terms of location of work, or or perhaps in relation to hours of work. I mean, particularly, you know, say, for example, you might have the uh, have reserved the right within the contract to change the shift of one employee to a different shift. And then it might be that that different shift then comes with a different premium rate or no premium rate whatsoever. But because you've already provided for that flexibility within the contract, you can swap people around in terms of in terms of the the hours of work and the and the rates of pay that they get for working those hours of work. Or alternatively, if you've got, you know, if, if you're providing a service which is spread over, a, for example, a number of different sites, then you would have the flexibility clause in there, which then provides that you can move employees from one site to another. And if you've already reserved that power within the employment contract itself, then of course, as long as you then exercise that power reasonably, then there is no change to the terms and conditions of employment that you need to make. But if you haven't got that flexibility within the contract of employment, then you do need to make a change. And to make a change to a contract of employment, then as with any other contract, you've got to get agreement. And so if you then don't get agreement, and that's this is where the whole fire and rehire or dismissal and re-engagement situation then comes to the fore, which is, but if people don't want to agree, then what do you do as an employer? 
And this is then where you essentially consult with the employees, and I'll get into a bit more detail about what that what that means, but you essentially you consult with the employees, you try to seek their agreement, and then in the absence of agreement, you then get to the stage with them where you then say to them that under their current contract of employment, you are going to terminate that employment, you're going to dismiss them. But if they wish to continue their employment, then they can sign a different contract, which then uh, encompasses the new terms that you want to implement. And if they then sign that contract of employment, they are therefore re-engaged and they remain employed. Now, it is obviously quite uh, an aggressive tactic, I guess, is quite a threatening tactic but ultimately if it is an important change that the business must make then it is a tactic which can be justified or it's an approach that can be justified and this has been tested in law um, you know over quite some time so it's it's essentially what um, what is termed uh, some of the substantial reason dismissal so an SRS SOSR dismissal but of course what that means is because it's a dismissal which is tested under the Employment Rights Act, under Section 98 of the Employment Rights Act, it's the employer has got to act reasonably. It's got to act fairly in treating that some other substantial reason as a sufficient reason to justify dismissing any particular employee. So a fair procedure needs to be followed. You would need to ensure that you explain the change and the reasons for that change, listening to each of the individual concerns raised by employees because the change that you are imposing in a new contract that you're requiring an employee to sign. It might be reasonable for a employee A to sign that new contract, but it might not be reasonable for uh, employee B to sign that new contract. And so there's going to be an element of listening to each of the concerns and, uh, and exercising your judgment. And then, of course, the tribunal will then assess that process that you've followed if, if, if of course, uh, the employer is challenged in any unfair dismissal claim. And they will come to a conclusion about whether you have done that in a fair and reasonable manner or not. Um, and uh, and as is set out in, a, in, in quite an old case, a 1978 case of Martin versus Automobile Propriety Limited, the Employment Appeal Tribunal has said that the vital question is whether or not the employer had acted fairly and reasonably with respect to the individual, not whether or not they had consulted the staff association. That is only part of the story. So that sort of deals with the whole need to consult individually, even though that it, it's, it's when you're making changes to terms and conditions of employment, it usually affects uh, quite a wide number of employees. Now, you then got the whole issue of collective consultation. Now, of course, I'm sure we're all pretty familiar with our obligations to collectively consult when we are going through a redundancy process. So when it's 20 or more employees that are being made redundant in a period of 90 days or less, then obviously we've got to consult under Section 188 of the Trade Union and Labour Relations Consolidation Act of 1992, and we must consult for 30 days. And if it's 100 or more, then we've got to consult for 45 days. Now, interestingly, or at least I think interestingly, is that although the uh, although Section 188 refers to uh, an employer who is proposing to dismiss as redundant, when we then turn to you know, all of the case law that, that, that involves all of these uh, uh, SOSR dismissals for changing terms and conditions, is that actually a changing 
terms and conditions proposal to dismiss. So if you are, for example, looking to change terms and conditions of, say, 50 employees, then if they don't agree, then you're going to be dismissing 50 employees. And admittedly, hopefully, you'll be re-engaging a large proportion of those employees, but you'll still be proposing to dismiss them. So that means that all of our collective consultation obligations, when we are uh, proposing to go through essentially a fire and rehire process, if that is going to be 20 or more employees, then we need to make sure that we are completing the HR1 form, and we also, also need to make sure that we are going through the collective consultation process as well. And we also need to be alert. We need to um, be aware of the possible impact of changes of terms and conditions. So, uh, and when I say that, I mean that you know, in terms of usually in terms of a uh, potential indirect discrimination impact of that. So, say for example, if we were looking to change terms and conditions, um, which would require much more uh, mobility in terms of travel across the country. Um, then there is a potential that that could be challenged under uh, in, indirect discrimination against women because women have the predominant uh, caring responsibilities for children and therefore are going to be less flexible as a group when compared with men when when having to be required to travel across the country, for example. And so that mobility requirement could therefore be indirectly discriminatory against women and so we must ensure that we have a look at that it doesn't mean that we can't do it because of course there is the uh, defense within indirect discrimination which means that it's uh, you're taking a proportionate step these are proportionate means of implementing change to achieve a legitimate aim and so it's not to say that we can't deal with that but obviously we've got to be mindful of that sort of effect so that that is essentially the current legislative environment um, and so there are already and certainly this is my view I mean there are already significant challenges that employers have when having to justify changes of contracts of employment and trying to impose changes of contract of employment through a dismissal and re-engagement process because what what will happen is that if they cannot justify the need for that change then individuals can then simply reject that change and and essentially bring claims under the current legislative regime now i do though completely appreciate and understand that and as i've said already it's quite an aggressive potentially aggressive step that an employer makes because it's the ultimate threat you know you either agree to these terms or we dismiss you from your job which particularly given that those terms have been agreed previously then why should the employer then be given, to an extent, carte blanche to then change those terms, change the deal, change the agreement uh, in the future? Well, obviously, that's then what the employer has to justify. They have to adjust, justify the context within which they are making the change, why they need to make that change. It can't simply be that, well, we just fancy making 5% more profit this year, so we're going to reduce... A certain number of benefits or or whatever it might be they've got to uh, as the as the the employment rights act says they've got to justify some other substantial reason so it's got to be a substantial reason and so the protection is there for individuals but of course if 
if the employer is in a strong position, a strong negotiating position, if there aren't that many other jobs out there within the industry, for example, if the employer is a key player within the industry, then it doesn't leave a lot of option for the employee if they were to reject that uh, reject that new contract. But there is also, again, currently under the I was going to say legislative regime. It's not so much legislative regime. This is a, quite an interesting case. It's a case of Hogg and Dover College. And what Hogg and Dover College provides for is that even when somebody has been dismissed and re-engaged, so the employee has agreed to sign the new contract, that even though they have signed the new contract, they've still been dismissed from their old contract. And because they have been dismissed under their old contract, they can still bring a claim for unfair dismissal for their dismissal under their old contract. So they don't have to walk away from the from their employer. They don't have to walk away from their job in order to simply be able to bring a claim. So they can protect their position by accepting the the, the changes of terms and conditions, protect their, obviously, protect their employment rights. And yet, despite the fact they're still employed, bring an unfair dismissal claim against their employer. So it's really quite a um, an interesting point that often isn't explored and is sometimes overlooked in these in these circumstances. Now, what about the code of practice, though? So uh, I did give you a little bit of a spoiler alert that I didn't think this really um, changed anything much at all. And I don't think it does. And the reason for that is because the steps that an employer has to take already in justifying any potential dismissal as a some other substantial reason dismissal. I don't think that this code of practice, this proposed code of practice, really raises the bar much at all. Um, now, let's have a look at what the code is doing. The first obligation that the code is placing on employers is that, what it says is that um, once it is clear to the employer that employees are not prepared to accept without further negotiations the contractual changes which it has proposed but the employer concludes still that it needs to uh, implement those changes and that it might require unilateral imposition of those changes through a dismissal and re-engagement then the employer has to re-examine its business strategy and plans in light of the potentially serious consequences for employees well what does that mean well to be honest, all that means is that there has got to be a paper trail and essentially a justification, a re-justification for the decision that's been made in the first place. Now, the code does go a bit further and it says, well, it suggests some factors that have got to be taken into account uh, in that reconsideration process. They include the risk to the employer's reputation, uh, the potential to damage the relationships with the workforce, damaging relationships with the trade unions, the potential for strikes or other industrial action, and particularly we saw that um, in the British Gas uh, case, which I referred to earlier, the risk of losing valued employees, the risk of facing legal claims, the cost of management time um, uh, needed to defend those claims, whether the proposed changes have a discriminatory impact, which I've already mentioned, and whether there are any alternative ways of achieving the objective. Uh, which again also leads into that indirect discrimination test which I've already mentioned. So an awful lot of this is already in existence because well, certainly the risk to the employer's reputation, damaging relationships with the workforce, relationships with the trade unions, potential for strikes and the risk of losing valued employees is no doubt 
factors that employers would take in any event before actually going down this road because it's quite obvious that those are the commercial impacts of, of doing so. That doesn't necessarily make any difference to obviously whether it is a fair, some other substantial reason dismissal uh, or not, because these are t- these factors are the commercial impacts rather than necessarily the fairness impacts, or whether it was fair, I should say, to actually uh, make the change in the first place. But anyway, it, so we've got to go through that process. We've got to consider those factors. It's not an, an exclusive list, um, so there are other factors that we might need to consider on a case-by-case basis. The employer has also got to provide information. Now, of course, as I've already just spoken about uh, the obligations in relation to collective consultation, so if this uh, proposal or if a proposal is affecting 20 or more employees, then there is going to be a statutory obligation under Section 188 to provide information to employees and employee representatives in any event. But what this code does is it now actually imposes a requirement to provide information in any event, no matter what the numbers affected are. So even if we're dealing with less than 20 employees, say it's a group of five employees that we're looking to change terms and conditions of employment for, then we would still have to go through a process of providing information to the employees or alternatively employee representatives. That information would include the nature of the proposals, who would be affected by the proposals, why there is a need for the proposals, uh, the time frame for the proposed changes and any other options that are being considered, which again, when we go back to the original communication, the justification in order to make sure that we are going to be in a position to show that if ultimately we do need to dismiss somebody, that it's going to be fair under the some other substantial reason dismissal process, then we should be doing this anyway, which is why, I, I again, I think that these steps that the code is requiring employers to take is in any event in place under the legislative regime. Now, of course, what this code does, though, is it actually says in black and white that this is what you've got to do. Um, because whilst, as certainly as legal advisors, I would be talking to a client and I would be saying, well, this is what you need to do in order to justify the some other substantial reason dismissal for any individual that decides not to re-engage with these new terms that you're proposing. But this code actually spells it out. So it's 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 to be honest i think this is just simply more a clarification um rather than necessarily actually introducing any additional obligations on any employers now we are going to have to make sure that from a document um, record keeping point of view uh, that we have got the evidence to support the steps that we've taken so it may mean that we need to be a bit more rigorous in terms of notes of meetings and communications and so on and so forth with employees and again particularly where we're dealing with employees where it's less than 20 who are affected because we would be having to do that under the collective consultation requirements in any event so so as I said I don't think this really changes anything now this is only a draft code so there is still the opportunity for this to be changed and certainly for those of you who have been reporting, not reporting, but for reading any of the reporting um, uh, in the press about this code, then there is a reasonable amount of commentary already out there that is essentially saying that it doesn't really change a huge amount. So whether there is going to be additional pressure from 
the trade unions and from the Labour Party perhaps to beef up this code a little bit more because of course originally the uh, the trade unions were pushing for specific legislation to be brought into into force to to protect employees who are affected by fire and rehire situations. And of course, as I said, this is not a change in legislation, albeit that employment tribunals will take the code of practice, um, obviously if it is then confirmed in due course um, and is no longer drafted and is a code of practice, um, they will ne- the employment tribunals will need to take the code of practice into account when then assessing whether any dismissal is fair or not. So it really is a case of as you were. Um, it doesn't change anything at the moment, obviously because it's only a draft code of practice. Even if this draft becomes uh, formally implemented, I don't see it really changing the practices that employers will have in relation to fire and rehire, albeit that, as I said, documentary evidence is probably going to become uh, far more key uh, in showing the process that we have followed and justifying it in conjunction with this code of practice. Thanks ever so much for listening. That's the end of this podcast on the government's proposals to deal with fire and rehire. Please do check out our other podcasts, which are available, uh, recent ones discussing flexible working uh, and also the duty on employers to take steps to uh, prevent sexual harassment from occurring in the workplace. If, of course, you do need any uh, legal advice or assistance in relation to anything employment-related, then get in touch with us at matthew.huggett at carbonlawpartners.com. But in the meantime, uh, hopefully speak to you all soon. Cheers, bye.